You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Kobernack. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. Hosea 11 in your Bibles, if you have them with you. And uh, Hosea is right after Daniel in the Old Testament. It's at the end of the Old Testament. Give you a few minutes uh, to get there. But I love that. I love that last song. And the first, the opening statement was that God looks, uh, excuse me, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And tonight we're going to look at the heart, but not our heart. We're going to look at someone else's heart tonight in Hosea 11. But I want to start by asking this question and get you thinking a little bit, some, some mental engagement. What is sin? Think about it. For many of us, our mind initially goes to, it's anything you say, do, or think that breaks God's law. It's a phenomenal definition. I would agree. I would say, yes, that's true. But every good parent has a reason behind every rule. Like, why is sin mentioned so much in God's written law? Why is it such a big deal to him? Some of us are thinking, well, it's anything that goes against his holiness because God hates sin. And yeah, he does. He hates sin. He can't dwell with sin because he's holy, and he can't sin because he's holy. But why does he hate it so much? Could there be something that we're overlooking that's so obvious of why he hates sin? What's the big deal about sin? What is sin? If none of you are at Hosea 11, you can't find it, just give up. You probably probably won't get there. Hosea 11. I'll give you a few few more minutes maybe to get there, this story. Uh, Growing up, I was 14, and uh, one of my friends, was soon to be friends, he, he started coming to church. His name was Alex. And Alex was a very remarkable uh, young man. He was 15 at the time, and he was very gifted, very athletic. Uh, he was one of those guys that just makes you really upset because he didn't have to work at anything. He was just so good at it. He, he was six foot tall. He could dunk the ball with two hands in basketball. And he never worked out. He never ate healthy. He never did anything except for video games. But yet, he still like, excelled at anything he did. And all of us are like trying and trying and working hard and trying to improve. And yet, we're still like nothing compared to him. And it was so frustrating. Some of you are getting bitter for me just thinking about that. That's got to be terrible. But Alex and I came, became really close. We were close friends. We played on the same basketball team, in the same youth group. Alex had a terrible upbringing, very rough home life. It actually, it, it, it really makes me want to cry every time I think about it. Um, but Alex started getting into church and got saved to my knowledge and was doing really well in spite of his home life. I was so excited, so happy for him. Got really close to Alex, loved Alex, did everything together, stayed at our house quite a bit. But after about a year, year and a half, Alex started getting back in with some of his old friends. He started getting away from God, started missing church, started only showing up for things that involved sports, and it it was really heartbreaking. In fact, one year, I was really praying that he'd come to our youth camp because I knew God would do something with Alex. He had so much potential. If he could just come to youth camp, maybe God could get a hold of him and he'd get revived. But Alex didn't show up to camp. In fact, the last night of camp, there was a message preached 
And it was on a burden, a burden for lost souls. And I remember after that service, I went down to the, the pond, the lake that was there, and I was just crying because I was thinking about Alex and all that he could do for God and all of his potential. And my heart was broken for Alex. He had so much potential, and God, I know, wanted to use him, but my heart was broken for him. And many of us have an Alex in our lives, someone who it breaks our heart because we see the path that they're going, and we know it's going to leave them empty. We know it's going to leave them destroyed. It's going to hurt them. And because we love them, that breaks our heart. But I came to tell you tonight that that feeling that I felt towards Alex that night and the feeling that many of you are feeling towards that individual, that loved one, that, that family member is the very same feeling that God feels about our sin, about my selfishness. Every time that I choose to complain, to gossip, to choose me over you, God feels that heartbreak. He's a personal God. In Hebrews 4, he's the high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt forsaken. John eleven thirty five. 35, he wept. He's a personal God. He cares so much about our heart, as was sung, because he has one. He's a personal God. He hates sin so much because he loves us so much. And any good parent hates anything that hurts their children. God hates sin because he loves you. His law that he gave is not the opposition of his love. It's not God's love or God's law. His law actually is a revelation of his love. He put in his law because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. I want to look at Hosea 11. And Hosea, if you're like me, before really studying this, I didn't know too much about Hosea. Hadn't read through it, hadn't preached from it. But Hosea is a minor prophet with a major message. And that message is God's unfailing love for his unfaithful people. In Hosea, in fact, to display God's love in the first parts of Hosea, Hosea the prophet marries someone who is going to be unfaithful to him to show, to picture God's love for us, even though we're unfaithful to him. Even though we sin, even though we fail, we choose self every day. Yet he still loves us. And he's the father in Luke 15 that's waiting with open arms for us. But in Hosea 11, it gives us another angle to God's love toward us. And it shows Israel and God as a parent-child relationship to give us a visual to help us understand God's love for us. And in verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him called my son out of Egypt. He calls Israel out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go. Ephraim is the ten northern tribes of Israel that's being spoken of. Taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. They're forgetting all the things that I've done for them. I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off thy yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Verse 5, he shall not return unto the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refused to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities. 
and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the most, they, they called them to the most high, none at all would exalt him. They called him God, but you know the story. They were discontent. They murmured. They complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Verse 8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. God's heart here is a broken heart. He's not the father who's frustrated and upset and waiting for you to come home just so he can enforce that rule and that punishment. He cares about you, and your sin hurts him. He's a personal God. So sin, before we find out and we look closer to what sin does to God and how it breaks his heart, we have to first find out what sin is to God. Like, how does he view it? What's his definition of it? Because if we don't understand that, then we could go about life and thinking, well, yeah, some sins hurt God, but not my sin. So first, sin is selfishness. Sin is selfishness. I think of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and he goes to his father, and the first words out of his mouth are, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. See, every prodigal story starts with a, with a selfishness. It starts with, give me. And as we read that, we think, oh, yeah, pray for the prodigal. But in reality, how many of our prayers start or literally just consist of, give me. God, give me this, heal this person, do this. And that's great. We should make our requests known to him. But if there's never a, a thank you, if there's never a God, I just want to spend some time with you. I just want to get to know you from your word. There's got to be that relationship that give me. How are our prayers? Are we selfish in our prayers? What about complaining? Complaining, the children of Israel, the very children of Israel that's talked about in Hosea 11. In Psalm 95.10, we see the glimpse from God's heart, and he says, 40 years was I grieved because of the children of Israel, because of their complaining. For 40 years, all those 40 years of complaining was breaking God's heart. See, what's the big deal about complaining? Complaining is saying, God, I don't really like what you're doing or what you're allowing. In fact, if I were you, I would do things a little bit differently. I'll, I'll, you know, I won't really intervene with it, but you know, if it were me, I would do it differently. It's a big deal to God. God hates that. It's selfishness, and it separates you from him. What about judgment? Being quick to judge people. In John 8, the woman caught, the woman caught in adultery, and you know the story. The Pharisees ended up breaking the law because they only brought the woman. They didn't bring the man as well, which was against the law. So they're breaking the law. They bring her to Jesus, and what happens? They, they're, they're wanting Jesus. They're magnifying her sin. Jesus, can you believe what she was doing? And Jesus says the famous words, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And each one dropped their stones, and they walked away. And they were convicted by their conscience. See, so many of us are so quick to pick up stones. We're so quick to cast judgment in situations that we don't even understand. We're not even a part of. And often that stone in our hand reveals that sin in our hearts. Sin is selfishness. 
I'd like to illustrate one point. Can I use two people if we social distance down here? Can we do that? Okay. I need two, two people to illustrate this. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking uh, Brother Charles Bryant and Brother Curry. Is that okay? I'll, I think, that could, be, I think that, could, that could be good. Even if the illustration's bad, it'll still be entertaining. So, okay. So I need one of, you, one of you gets food and one of you gets money. Which one, which one wants the food? Which one wants the money? Food? Okay, food's over here. Food's over here, money's over here, okay? I'll be in the middle. We'll, we'll social distance. We'll social distance a little bit. Oh, I forgot to tell you, the food isn't real, but the money's real. So now, did you want to switch, right? So here's, here's the illustration, okay? In Ezekiel 28, the Bible gives us an amazing look at the fall of Satan. In Isaiah 14, we see that Satan fell because of selfishness, that I will be like the Most High. But in Ezekiel 28, it tells us, why? Like, how that happened. And it says, by the multitude of merchandise. And merchandise is an incredible word. I encourage you to read Ezekiel 28. I believe it's verse 15 and 16. And merchandise has this idea to it. Uh, Brother Curry, what, what restaurant are you going to? You have 10 bucks. You have 10 bucks. Okay, I'll give that to you. Don't get excited, though. It's his money. He's getting the money. But you're going to go. <laughs> you can't go to Starbucks. You can't buy anything from Starbucks for 10 bucks. Okay, so what are you going to get for $10? You have $10 there. What's, what's a place here you're going to go to for a good meal? $10. Oscars. Okay, Oscars. Okay, so I'm the, I'm the cashier. I'm the, I'm the person at Oscars. Okay, I'm working there. So you come to Oscars, and you say, you know, I'm going to get, what are you going to get? Oh, you're going to have money to spare. Let's say, let's, say you're, let's say you're buying for you and a couple friends, so it ends up being about $10, okay? So you order it, and you give it to me, okay? You give me the money. I'm the cashier, right? Now, I don't own Oscars. I just work there, okay? So you're going to give me the money, and here's what that word merchandise, this is what Satan did, okay? He gets the money because he was, uh, most people believe he was the worship leader in heaven. He certainly was, was a worshiper, and he was the most beautiful, the created being in heaven. He was created perfect, and so Brother Curry's given me the money, and I only work for Brother Charles. Brother Charles is going to represent the owner of Oscars. He gets the profit, okay? But I just work there. So I get the money, and I'm thinking, Oof, you know what? $10, Brother Charles is loaded. He owns a business. In fact, he's going to pay me anyway when it comes time for my paycheck. Like, someone's complimenting me with, with what I'm doing, but... I mean, God loves me, and he's going to bless me anyway, so I'll keep a little bit of it. I mean, he's going to pay me anyway. God loves me. He's going to bless me. He, I mean, you know, he's going to overlook it. It's just a little sin, just a little selfishness, a little bit of complaining. So I'm going to keep one dollar, and I'm going to give the owner the other nine. I mean, I'm, I'm like almost doing him a favor. Like, he's going to pay me anyway. I'm just keeping a little bit. Times are tough. But that's exactly what Satan did with the praise, with the glory, yeah. is it wasn't him blatantly just starting out as a wicked rebellion. It turned into that. But it started with him just keeping a little bit of the praise, a little bit of the glory. And the multitude of merchandise is what caused Satan himself to fall. It started with just selfishness. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. We'll give you a hand. Sorry you don't get the, the food, but, you know, we'll give him a hand. Give him a hand for helping out. Thank you, guys. You got it. It's all yours. Yeah, Brother Charles. <laughs> so sin is selfishness. I think, I think we're getting the picture. Sin is selfishness. We could go on and on and on. Sin is 
selfishness. But sin is selfishness that breaks God's heart. So that selfishness is what sin is to God. But what does sin do to God? It breaks his heart. I think of Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6, where it says when God saw the, 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 the wicked imaginations and the, the thoughts of, of the people were only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he, had, that he had made them. And it says at the end of verse 6, and it grieved him at his heart. It hurt God. I mentioned it already. Psalm 95.10, excuse me. When it says that God was grieved for 40 years, the children of Israel, of murmuring and complaining and selfishness. God's heart was broken. I think growing up, many of you, your parents can, can relate. But believe it or not, I got in trouble at times. I know it's hard to believe. But I would get in trouble. And I remember a turning point. Now, I still got in trouble after this. But it was, it was a lot less after this moment. I remember the famous words that my dad would say, and many of you know it, is the famous words that are always said and meant well, but nobody believes them. It's, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And as a child, you're thinking, yeah, right. You're just saying that to make, make yourself feel better about spanking me. It's not, it's not harder for you than me. It hurts. But I remember the turning point when I realized the truth of that statement, when I looked up and saw that my dad was crying. You can't fake those tears. It literally was hurting him more than it was hurting me. And when God chastens us, says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Well, his judgment is not out of a heart of, of harshness and anger. It's a heart of love because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. He doesn't want the consequences of sin on us. Sin hurts God's heart. I remember uh, in college this past year, actually this past semester, it was a Saturday. I was sitting in the truck with my boss, a pastor that I work for in the area. If any of you know uh, Pastor Chapel in Lancaster, um, it's his son-in-law. He started a church in Palmdale. I've been working for him. And I've had great conversations with him. And in one conversation, we were waiting for, for some people to show up for an event. And I was sitting in the truck with him. And, uh, and Pastor Mord, he, 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 he gave me counsel quite a bit. And so one of the days, I asked him, because I was dealing with a lot of, of college students, college men in the dorms about my age, who had a lot of different struggles. And they'd come to me with a lot of things that I just didn't know how to answer. I really, a lot of times, it would consist of me saying, I don't know. I really don't. I was just being honest. And I asked him, because several of, of those, those boys were coming to me, and they were asking me different things. And I, I told them, I said, a lot of people are struggling, including, I mean, I, I struggle as well. We all struggle in different ways, but with, with the temptation and giving in and then the guilt and the shame, right? Like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I reacted that way. I can't believe that I looked at that or whatever the case might be for you. And I asked Pastor Mord, I said, you know, what's the key? Like, what do I tell people like that? And he said, Jared, here's, here's why. There's so much of us giving into sin and turning into guilt and shame instead of conviction and repentance. He said, here's the, the key. Here's the difference. He said, as humans, he said, especially as men, but as humans, but we're in that moment of temptation. He said this. He said, your mind will tell you. If you've been in church and you know anything scripturally, your mind will tell you in that moment of temptation, this is wrong. This reaction, this anger, this complaining, this lust, it's wrong. But your heart, your sinful flesh, will always tell you it's good for me. In that moment of conflict, what happens? The heart wins. And then it leads to the shame and the guilt afterwards. You're thinking, what did I do? And so I'm thinking, 
Okay, so what's the solution? You're saying that I'm going to lose every time. And he said, the key is both scenarios, you're thinking about how your sin affects you. He said, and the only way we will ever get victory over sin is when we stop viewing how our sin affects us and start looking at how it immediately affects God. See, that's the amazing difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt says, how am I going to deal with my sin? How is my sin affecting me? Oftentimes, it's the embarrassment and saying, oh, I'm sorry, because I don't want people to see this. I don't want this to to ruin my reputation. And it's that guilt. How am I going to cover it? How am I going to get it right? And it often leads to these resolutions. I'm going to do better. I'm going to come to the altar. I'm going to tell God, I'll do better. And it's that shame. Here's what guilt says. Guilt says, I can't go to God until I get it right. But conviction says, I can't get it right until I go to God. The only way I can get victory over the sin is by going to him. So here's what conviction is. Conviction is God reminding us, reminding you, reminding me of how he feels about our sin. He's saying, I know that that you've been looking at how does my sin, how could my sin possibly affect me in the future? And some of us are wondering, I've not been caught. I've not been punished. My selfishness is not as bad as this because my life's pretty good. Because we've only been looking at the consequences of our lives. But it immediately hurts the heart of God. He hates your sin so much because he loves you so much. And that sin is separating you from God. So here's the solution. Many of us, if you're like me, when I understood this concept, it it broke me. And I felt that conviction that 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about. It says, godly sorrow worketh repentance. Godly sorrow is conviction. It's realizing how much it hurts God and how he views sin. And that's the only way we can get to that place of repentance, true change. So many of us resolve to do better, but none of us actually repent. Like, I wonder this. As Christians, so many of us, I was like this for so long. I thought repentance was something I did at salvation. And then, like, I just pray for everybody else to repent. But repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10, is repent, repent, repent in that passage. It's written to Christians. See, repentance is so key for Christians because we have to go back to God. We have to turn from our sin. Our sin separates us positionally from God before salvation. But after salvation, in that bondage of sin, that's why he hates it, is because it separates us relationally from him. The repentance. And so many of us, if you're like me, you'll feel that conviction. Wow, that's how God views my sin. And let it turn to repentance. See, conviction that leads to repentance, that's true change. Then in that moment of anger, that, that moment of that, I want to react this way. I want to, to spread this rumor I don't know is true. I want to look at this image I know I shouldn't. And in that moment, instead of thinking, how will my sin affect me? Or how could it affect me? To think, how does this affect God? See, if, if we truly love God, then we'll hate what hurts him. He hates what hurts us because he loves us. So if we love him, shouldn't we hate what hurts him? And I'm telling you, this concept will change your life. It will change how you view sin. It will change how you are quick to react. 
See, Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 11 talks about, he gives us a glimpse of his heart. He says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the following verse, he explains, because I am meek and lowly in heart. It's a glimpse of his heart. It's the only time Jesus opens up about his heart. He's meek. He's gentle. He's humble. And he's lowly. He's very accessible. He's not of a high status to where you think he's got too many things going on. I understand, you know, that he might not be pleased with my sin. It goes against his law, but he sees your sin. I think of Joseph in Genesis 39. Before there was a written law, and Potiphar's wife comes to him, no accountability partners, no church that's telling him, hey, you got to do it right. No, don't do this. He's giving counsel, just him and God, and he says, how could, I, how could I sin do this great wickedness against God? Like David in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Sin is personal. It's not an abstract definition that we write down. Yes, it breaks God's law. Yes, it does. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he hates sin. But the why? It's because he loves you so much. And in Luke 15, he gives us another glimpse of his heart. And he shows that he is the father who extends open arms, not only to the outward prodigal son who wastes his substance, but also to the elder son who was stuck in his pride, thinking that his sin wasn't as bad as his brother's sin. Jonah, I think of Jonah, who his definition of sin was Nineveh's wickedness. But he never defines sin as his own selfishness. The end of the book, it ends. Don't even know what happens because it just ends with him sitting. He had asked for his life to be taken from him. And he didn't rejoice over the repentance of, of Nineveh. He actually, he was weeping over He was so selfish. Can you believe that? And it's because our definition of sin has got to go to a personal definition of sin is selfishness and it immediately hurts God. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.